And if you are remaining here with us, again, welcome. We're glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. I'd invite you to take out your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one probably under your chair or in the chair in front of you uh, that you can grab. And we are in the book of 1 John. So where is 1 John? Way back at the end. You've got to hit Revelation, start working your way back. You'll run across Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. That's a fast way to find it. And uh, we've just been working through this this book together, and we'll continue to work through it right into the summer months. And so we saw a glimpse of summer this, this week, right? The temperatures were nice and warm. Our kids had shorts on. It was awesome. Uh, that's, that's abnormal for most people throughout the rest of the year, all right? I'm just, <laughs> all right. Um, so we are here. We're in First John. We're, we're, we're working through together. Um, we will finish chapter 2 this week. And so we intentionally are going slowly through this, right? There's temptation to think First John's a short book, let's just blast through it, but it really is rich in content. Um, you could sit down and read the five chapters of First John in one sitting. It wouldn't take you very long, but there's, there's potential if we do that, we just run right across it, all right? If you remember last week at all, we really walked through what I think is probably a familiar passage if you spent uh, significant time in the church, uh, kind of growing up in history or whatever that might be. All right? And the phrase of do not love the world. Maybe you've heard that before, but we just looked at John's words and tried to break it down to help it make some tangible sense. What does that mean for us as followers of Christ, if that's what you are today? Right? You call yourself a Christian. What does it mean to do not love the world? Right? And just to think about this. I, as I kind of even thought afterwards of, all right, so this is what happens for me a lot of times, I think after, it's like a good joke, right? You always think about it after you have a conversation with somebody, like, oh, I should have said that. That's, that's my life a lot of times on Sunday afternoons. I kind of just sit and think and, and I'm doing things reflecting about it, right? Um, what I just preached about. And so my kind of my mind and heart went to some places last week afterwards on Sunday morning. Like, how does this help us make sense? Like, did it, did it land where it was supposed to land? Did, did God's word come across clearly? And I found myself thinking, okay, what are things that kind of get our attention very easily, right? A movie that is suspenseful, right? We kind of watch it, we find ourselves just sucked in, right? And we imagine just a miracle ending. What if that actually took place? What if that, we kind of put ourselves there. Even, even the Marvel movies, right? They have such a draw because it's just otherworldly. But we find ourselves kind of drawn to this, and what if that would actually happen? And our hearts kind of get wrapped up in things, right? We do this with sports teams. We follow teams. We watch them win and we lose. And it's like we're there. We experience the high of the win and the low of the loss as if we're right there with them. And why does all that happen? Well, it's because we're hardwired, right, with a sense of wanting fulfillment. Like, I think God put within us a sense of we want to be fulfilled to the truest extent we possibly can. And we're trying to find it wherever we can find it. And we're left with brokenness because we try to find it in things that aren't ever really going to fully give it to us. Right? Even just tangibly, like my own personal life, right? So I am a college basketball fan. I like the University of North Carolina. They smoke Duke twice in the regular season. It's the biggest rivalry, some would say, in all of college sports. Okay? And they, they take care of Duke, and they come to ACC semifinals, and they lose to Duke. <laughs> 
I don't think it's amen worthy, Mr. Norman. I think that um, we need to talk later on, maybe. I don't know, right? right? But what we see happening, right, is I'm, I'm riding this high, like this is going to, like I don't care if Zion plays. I don't care how great everyone thinks he is. I'm not in love with him like everybody else in the world seems to be, all right? And yet then my heart gets broken a little bit. I have nothing to do with that game. I, I, I'm here today. I don't, my life didn't change because Duke won yesterday in the ACC championship. But my point is, I think often we're, we're trying to get after other things that we think will bring fulfillment to us, that we think will bring satisfaction to life. And that happens because we're hardwired, but we're hardwired to find this joy and fulfillment in knowing Christ. But we chase after it in everything else. And John is trying to urge us through his, his writing to cling more to Jesus than anything else. He is, Jesus is not this like um, kind of fairy-ish dream that we can just maybe have in our lives as something that can give us kind of peace one day. Jesus is real. He is tangible. He desires to know you in a deeper way, and he desires you to have the most fervent life of how he defines it. He wants you to find your total fulfillment in him. Not in your sports team, not in your family, not in your spouse, not in your job. Because we say it all the time. I feel like I say it all the time. If, if I'm saying it only to myself, and that's fine, but those things will bankrupt me eventually. Right? Because if I find my total satisfaction, my joy of, of fulfillment of who I am in Kim, my wife, what, what if she doesn't outlive me. I think it's highly unlikely, right? I think she's going to outlive me, okay? Right, but, but what if that doesn't happen? And I, I'm looking at my 80s even, right? And I, I'm going to be left wondering, like, what, what's this been all about? Because now I've got nothing. See, John's encouragement there was, look, do not love the world, because the world will break your heart. But Jesus will not. And from there, John really moves towards a matter that not only, I think, bothers him, but it seems to be happening within the people he cares about. And that's where we are today, all right? First uh, John chapter 2, verses 18 and 27, a little bit lengthier section here, but let's read it together, okay? This is God's Word. It says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies Christ is Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has also the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In what you heard from the beginning, sorry, if what you heard in the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. 
that may feel wordy or heady, and you might need to read it three or four times. But hopefully, as we just kind of talk through, we can help it make some sense here, what John's talking about. Again, so John, just kind of background history. John was, after spending time with Jesus, Jesus returns to heaven. John was probably a pastor. Um, He probably had a group of people that he just cared for, and he wanted to impart God's truth to in a real and meaningful way, not just a theoretical, like, hey, read this book. I think it'll help your life. But no, hey, this is Jesus. He will help your life. And John imparted to them, he gave to them the gospel, right? And so now he's got some concerns. Based on what we just read here, right, what do you think might be one of his concerns, This is a chance for you just to maybe wake back up again, all right, or kind of discern what you just read about. What do you think here? Yeah. Okay, so like a duplicity of life, like a duplicity of life, like knowledge, but okay, so maybe a cognitive ascent, but not actually walking that out. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? What was one of his concerns, you think? Someone's concerned. What? False teaching, Okay. And then false teaching having an impact here, right? That apparently there was, right, some duplicit thinking, some false teaching. And then what was the result of those things? Well, we just read it. Yeah, some of it just bounced out. They just decided to walk away. So, so John's writing here really is a heart of concern. If he's a pastor, right, pastor, overseer, shepherd, kind of interchange those terms in New Testament, He's got concern for the what? The sheep, if he's a shepherd, right? That's kind of the parallels you see a lot in Scripture. So here, there seems to be some teachings coming in. It's not gospel teaching. It's teaching other than Jesus. And some people are are starting to get drawn to that teaching and not just kind of like, hey, maybe there's something to be made of this. But nope, they're saying, look, I think this has got more truth than Jesus, and we're going to follow it. John's heart is not concerned because he sees the status quo lowering in number. So John's not concerned that attendance last Sunday was dropped 20%. What John's concerned about is people truly abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ in pursuit of what he would call a false gospel. Someone or some people have come in preaching new teaching. And the effect is that people are leaving. Right. Right, gospel means what? Does anybody remember? Anybody know? Just, cog- just remember from your own background. Gospel means what? Good news. So someone's come in. He said, look, I've got good news. It's not Jesus. It's this. Right? It's not Jesus. Then it's anything else. It's not Jesus is one who calls himself Right, the Son is connected with God the Father. That's not the fullness of the good news that's being taught here. And John's very upfront. He says, look, anyone who does this, who teaches this, is called an antichrist. Often we think of that maybe in terms of what book? Maybe Revelation, right? The Antichrist, Revelation 13. Okay, if you've not tried to kind of work through Revelation yet, just if you try it, just go slowly and don't freak out, all right? I don't know why it has four heads, but it does, okay? Um, but just work through things slowly. But in there, we, we see this definition of, of one who, who is really kind of labeled as the Antichrist, whose, whose main job and objective and goal is to draw as many people away from Jesus as, as possible. And so John says, look, even now, there's Antichrist among you, All right? There, there's, 
there is not this grandeur of power individual. I think often people think Antichrist, we think just this grandeur, kind of like we conjure up in our mind this, I don't know, humongous monster type person who's just kind of drawing people away and away, and there's power and fire comes from the eyeballs and those sort of things, right? But, but the Antichrist here that's being talked about according to John in this scenario right, is one that just simply has influence. They've got influence to, to impact people. Right, by definition, an antichrist just broadly is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Just broad term. Anybody who denies that Jesus Christ is considered an antichrist. It, it makes sense. Antichrist. So broadly, it's, it's a denial that Jesus is the Christ. More specifically, as one author states it, it's a human representative from the evil one of whom Jesus himself spoke about. So kind of put it in some table. Now it's a human representative of, of Satan. He's doing the work that Satan would desire that person or he or she to do. Right? John 17, 15, Jesus himself said this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from what? From the evil one. That's a fascinating statement. That's Jesus praying to God the Father for his, his people, for you and for me. And it wasn't, hey, hey just like deliver them. It was, no, just, just keep them as they live life, as they go to work, as they get married, as they have kids, as their neighbors, as they get old, keep them. That's what, that's what Jesus' heart for us. Protect us. So not that protect us from all things, but that so we would remain diligent and faithful to Jesus. That's why he prayed that way. See, Jesus recognizes that there will be people who are going to try to really come within the fold, right, within the sheep, Right, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and their goal is to take sheep to get the sheep out. See, Jesus fully recognized that Satan is real, that Satan is active on earth, and that he will strive to accomplish the plans he has. And those plans will include driving a wedge between Jesus and his people. However, we see again not a plea by Jesus in that John seventeen passage, right? Not a plea to just get people out, but know that as we live and work, that God's hand of protection would be on his people. Right? This is a consistent concern that I think John has. Again, John writes back to people he cares about out of concern. John believes the greatest endeavor for a humanity is Jesus. To pursue Jesus, to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to understand who Jesus is, to mature in Christ. And what he's seeing is somebody else or probably groups of people coming in and saying, you don't need Jesus, just do this. Jesus doesn't matter, this matters more. And there he's watching people pursue truth or flee truth to pursue brokenness. To pursue those things we talked about when reviewing last week. Things that will become bankrupt. John remains consistent with Jesus' words. That God's people would have God's hand of protection on them. So if Jesus says, right, that that, Lord, um, don't take them, but keep them, right? Let's just assume, right, maybe just for a moment, that Jesus is only praying for his disciples. Those who are kind of closest to him, right? I do not pray, ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And now we see John, in 1 John, affirming Jesus' words and really having the same heart for his people that he's shepherding. 
Okay, so now we're seeing it walk out. So what can we assume maybe potentially about us today? That Jesus might want the same thing for us. That the heart of Jesus might not change in this matter. And here's what I mean. I believe that, that Jesus wants you and he wants me to stay and to remain faithful in Jesus. That God's hand of protection would remain on us that Satan would not have his work on us, that our faith would be protected so that it would endure. I think we can confidently make that assumption. Jesus prayed it for specifically his disciples, but I think probably at large, all disciples, followers. Okay, John kind of affirms it again in 1 John, and we see, I think we can assume that God, look at guys, God's plan for you, his hope for you, is that you would remain in Jesus. Like, that, that's the end, right? I could just put a period, we could sing one more song, maybe and go home. I think there's more here than just that. But that's John's big picture right now. That you would remain in Jesus. That, that you would not be drawn to something false, that something that, that would entice you. That you would remain in Jesus for your full joy and satisfaction and your promise of eternity and your forgiveness of sins. Look, throughout history, and even our lifetime, lifetime, many have come with new messages. Right? Many have come with new promises, new guarantees. Let me just jog your memory. Some of you who are more vintage in age would recognize some of these more readily than those who are younger. The People's Temple. Does that sound familiar? Jim Jones roughly 1955 to 1978. I wasn't born yet, in case you cared to know that. I feel even older, some of you now. But <laughs> right? Jim Jones, his goal was to create this egalitarian, kind of utopian community. <coughs> in the end, 909 lives were lost through a cyanide-laced drink, committing a large mass suicide. He came with a promise of euphoria for people. In the end, they thought, will fall into the grave. Jim Jones never rose in that grave. Does it, uh, the Branch Davidians, does that sound familiar to anybody? David Koresh, I do remember this one. Waco, Texas. Koresh believed that he was the Messiah. They thought the apocalypse was, I, mean, I remember watching the news as tanks rammed through these concrete walls because they were not only concerned for him, but for the mass followers. They thought he stockpiled a bunch of weapons, right? And the tanks went through there trying to get people out to free them. David Koresh did not rise from the grave. Heaven's Gate, 1972-1997. Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. They believed and convinced others that aliens would escort members of this group to the kingdom of heaven via extraterrestrial spacecraft. And perhaps you remember the 1997 picture of a mass suicide, black Nikes, right? Sheets over the people's faces. As they believe that as this Hale-Bopp comet came by, it was concealing the spaceship that was coming to take them to their eternal kingdom. The problem is, Marshall, Applewhite, and Bonnie Nettles never rose from the grave. These are just some more modern and extreme and easily Googled examples of false teaching and this goal and attempt to draw people 
But this is the very thing John was warning against. That's the exact thing John was trying to preclude from happening. That those whom he cared about, those who had trusted in Christ, would be drawn to something else. A promise, fulfillment, and joy, and satisfaction. Right? Christian science, Scientology, the same kind of cult era. And look, my grandparents were in that. Right? I mean, this promising deliverance and, and fullness that, that they can't deliver on. And look, we can talk all day about cults that I think exist. And what is a cult? Anything that promises something that's part that Jesus did not promise. Often it's got mass followings. Often it has weird things that happen and take place. But what does it tell you? Well, it tells you a couple things. It tells you that if 909 people can, can be convinced to take and to drink this drink, to follow one person to a grave, it tells you that we are hardwired with a desire to find fulfillment and complete satisfaction in something. It tells you that. That story is repeated over and, and over and over through history. And it tells you that without Jesus, man, that often that ending is broken. And that, again, there might be temptations for our, our minds to kind of go to those extremes, right? Meaning we consider these larger cult-type groups and their teachings, their followings, and we obviously conclude that like, those people were unstable. Like they, all those people who decide to say yes to, right, to Jim Jones and to David Koresh and Marshall, they, they must have just been deranged. They must have been like, you know, uh, not the, the sharpest tool in the shed. And I think that'd be foolish. I think that among those groups, among these people, were many who have been characterized as completely normal and rational to everyone that they knew. They probably had college degrees, some had families, I'm sure some had a background of church even. Perhaps, at one point, maybe even some profess a trust in the gospel. But they were swayed to believing something that they thought could deliver what it actually couldn't deliver. See, John's concern, I believe, is as valid as it has ever been today. And what's his concern? That people would not fall for something that isn't Jesus. And John recognizes there's been many antichrists that have come. Many who have come to deny the deity of Jesus and many who will come. Right? John calls the last hour. You kind of hear that term used throughout the New Testament. What does that mean? It's just a time period between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. And if you read the New Testament, you get some urgency. You get some of the writers feeling like Jesus could come back tomorrow. Like if you know nothing else, this is probably the only thing you should know about our denomination of Advent Christian denomination. We were founded as a denomination, which is the network our church is part of, on the expectant return of Jesus Christ. And that expectant return, like this church is here because someone came and taught, and out of the truth of Scripture, that Jesus could come back tomorrow. So our response should be to make sure that we're ready for that to happen and to help make sure other people are ready for that to happen. Right? Maturity in Christ and growing God's kingdom. That, that, that's why this church, right, finally became incorporated in 1940. 1989, sorry. 1894. There it is. 1894. I looked at Norman. You weren't there. I know you weren't there. Right? <laughs> right? And since then, that's continually been our heartbeat. That we've been living in this last hour. 
that all my dreams and fruitions for life may not come to happen, for my kids' lives may not come to happen, because Christ could come back before that. But that will be far better than all my dreams and aspirations coming to fruition. John recognized that, that so many have come, and he thinks that so many will come. So many will come trying to distract and pull. And if, I, if they just be used by Satan, just grab their heart. He knows fully that many have wielded their power, their attention, and their message to press directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be a message that promises to do exactly what Jesus says he will do. Maybe even more. It may be a message that, that, that claims because it's directly from Right, this truth or that truth, or they kind of have some foundation, but in the end, if it's not Jesus, it's not going to be able to deliver. The gospel is the one statement that delivers on its claim. It's the one statement that is alone true, and it alone saves. Right, that through faith in the one that is Christ, a person's sins are forgiven. Right, that we believe that Christ was he lived, he died. For our sins, he was resurrected on the third day so that our sins would be forgiven and that we too can know him, know his fullness both now and forever. I title this message, The the Gospel, right? Endure in the Gospel. Because that's John's call for them. So the Gospel claims something that directly opposed any other teaching. The Gospel of Jesus directly, continually opposes any other form of good news or form of Gospel. And it's this gospel that John wants us to desperately be rooted in. Again, he writes out of concern. And his concern is that, you know what? We're like fish. You know how to go fishing? Do you know how to do this act called fishing? Emma, (laughs) that was not encouraging. All right. Well, here's how it works. You put, all right, you got a pole, you got a hook, and you got some line. You You can put it in the water, sometimes by itself without any bait on it and catch a fish. But you want to be generous so you buy a 12-cent can of corn and you use corn instead, right? Or maybe you want to give them the good stuff and get a real worm. Perhaps you're a fancy fisherman and use lures and such. We're like fish. Anything typically flashy or shiny catches our eyes. Do you know why a good lure works? Often it's the light that hits it, the shine that it makes as it goes through the water. And it catches that fish's attention. And that fish thinks, I want that. So it goes after it. And it grabs it. And what's it find? Not a meal, but usually a painful, uncomfortable experience. We're often like fish. Often what's shiny catches our eyes and our ears and entices us and it tries to draw us in. But in the end, we're just like a fish being drawn to a lure. If that thing drawing you right now and today and promising to just complete you, if that is not Jesus, it is like a lure that will not deliver on his promise. If Kim came to me, right? Wednesday's my birthday. If Kim comes to me and says, look, for your birthday, from now on, my goal is just to make you as happy as I can as a human being. One, she'll never say that. All right? But let's just say she does. That was what she gave to me as a gift. 
she cannot deliver on that gift. I would be tempted to take advantage of that. Because that sounds appealing, right? I can wake up in the morning knowing that Kim's very one goal and passion today is just to make my life great. It'll be a good day. Because now I'm not just striving to do it for myself. Now someone's trying to do it for me. This is even better. I don't know. I get up, let's say it happens at 7 a.m. I'm pretty confident by 8 in the morning that's, that may have gone away. That promise might be underdelivered on. And perhaps, probably not even intentionally. I might find myself wanting right, a nice hot cup of coffee and Kim can't read my mind, but she didn't bring me a cup of coffee and now she's let me down. People around us are not meant to deliver on what Jesus can deliver on. John knows this. And he also knows that any teaching that does not lead you to Jesus cannot deliver on what it promises to deliver on. Perhaps some of the most alarming statements in these simple verses that John gives us are verse 19 and verse 21. Look at those two verses very quickly with me. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. And then verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth. See, apparently, those coming to teach this new gospel, this this new enlightenment, were people they knew. It wasn't an outside group. It wasn't a YouTube video that caught their ear. It wasn't an Instagram feed that all of a sudden someone's life looked magical so they wanted to follow that person. But no, it was someone from within. Someone that at one point seemed to trust the gospel. At one point, they seemed to have have totally bought in to trusting this guy named Jesus for their hope and their salvation, right? From the outward appearance, those individuals were part of the family. But the problem was their faith was never genuine. I would say that Scripture teaches that these people were never truly given their lives to Christ. Their, their faith was not genuine. They had all the outward trappings. But their faith, faith was not authentic. That's a warning to us. Not to walk around with microscopes trying to like evaluate everybody else's life around us, but to evaluate our own lives. To wrestle that question, like, is my faith an authentic faith? Have I truly trusted in Jesus as my Savior? And if so, then what? Then what? And that's a huge question for the Christian to ask themselves. And we don't do it very often. Because I'm convinced, I had a conversation with my dad this week. He's 75. He said, I'm doing a study through the Bible. I'm just underlining every verse. It has to do with perseverance. 75 years old. I said, that's great, because I think perseverance is a primary marker that someone has saving faith. I think it's one of the only things you can take to the bank. That that someone has authentic saving faith is that it endures. It continues on. It it, it goes. And not that there won't be moments of struggle or seasons that, that are just hard, but that we don't withdraw. These people, I don't think, had genuine faith. Why? They withdrew. There was no fruit in their lives to show that faith. So if you're a Christian today, that's what, again, and what I mean by that, that's what you claim, then it is expectant of you, according to the scriptures, that there's fruit of that. Like that should be what marks your life. 
that, that your life is different than the one who doesn't have Jesus. And I'm not going to say exactly what that looks like because it looks different in your job and in your family and your circumstance. But there are some consistent things. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, so our lives should be marked with that. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? I think I said a couple of them twice. Like, I think that's what is expected of us. Not, I hope to get that one day. And as we're striving those things, well, that's perseverance. That, that's the continual existence of the faith within us. And there, again, will be, there might be seasons of struggle. But listen, listen to Jude, chapter 20, verse 24 and 25. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. What does that tell you? And in your season of struggle, perhaps in your season of doubt, turn back to Jesus. Because he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Like that comes out of Jesus. Like that comes out of God working in your life. See, I think those who right, never had genuine faith and choose to walk away, right? Obviously, there's no perseverance. The second group that was in verse 21 we talked about there, John was specifically writing to them because they knew the truth. They knew the truth of the gospel. John's heart was that they would remain in the gospel. And Jude's encouragement is for us today still that we would be clinging to Jesus. That Jesus, it is he who keeps us from stumbling. And with what goal? That we would present ourselves blameless knowing that our blamelessness comes only from Christ. Essentially, this means that we need to avoid wandering away. Like, we need to move closer to Jesus in times of struggle. So it seems like when those people were here in this group and they started to struggle, they started to wander, they started to doubt, their goal was not, Jesus, help me in this. Their goal was, I'm just going to pursue this because it seems shinier over here. Look, when you are in seasons of struggle or doubt, don't press away from Jesus. If you're ashamed, or you feel like he's, he's not going to be able to help you this, look, Jesus already knows it. Because if he doesn't know it, he's not God. Because God is all-knowing. And those moments of struggle and wandering and just trying to figure it out, I would really encourage you to press closer to Jesus. Because as Jude reminds us, it is him who can keep you from stumbling. So, not only can he keep you, he wants to keep you. Like, he wants to keep you from stumbling. In our weakness, Jesus welcomes us to press into him. He welcomes us to return to him. Look, John's got to be helpful. And maybe you're like, look, I don't struggle with this. 
I'm not sucked into a prosperity gospel teaching. I'm not sucked into false teaching. I can know the Bible pretty well. Look, it's, it's more than just knowledge. It's, it's a life fully committed to Jesus. It's living out as missionaries sent into the world, declaring a message of good news and of hope. That's why John said in verse 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is a promise that he made to us, eternal life. He says there's so many things that are going to come and clamor loudly for your attention and for your heart. But don't fall for that. Let what you heard, let the gospel abide in you. Let it be remaining in you. Not just now, not just on a Sunday when it's comfortable in a church setting around people you think you can kind of like and get along with, but in all moments of your life. Because it will promise you hope and peace and joy and fulfillment. In fact, it will promise you even eternity, as John tells us. Listen, cash will run out or it will lose its value. Your position in life will change. You will eventually get a new job or you will, will retire. Championships are replaced. Even a growing or attractive religious movement or cult following will eventually fall short of the promise to deliver anything that's not founded in the gospel. It's why John's reminder is so pivotal for us today. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let the gospel not become dull in your life. And that's my biggest fear for my life and for your life. Is the gospel just becomes dull. I've got a tackle box of lures. I don't really even fish. I don't know why I have it. And in it are tons of rusty lures. Just rust it out. Tons of things that once were nice and shiny, functional. They're probably rusted because I actually tried to use them at one point because that's how they got wet. But they carry nothing anymore. And I could try to, to get the rust off. It's probably pitted in there. Let's be honest, it's not worth all the work. Lures are not that expensive. The gospel will not. You can let it collect dust. You can let it become something that's not as grand to you, but it never, never lost its shot. You're, perhaps your image has become clouded. Perhaps I've stopped looking at it with as much marvel and majesty and hope that it truly does provide us. Look, we've got to let the gospel of Jesus, the pure, unadded to gospel, endure must let the gospel of Jesus be where your hope is found, where you run for restoration, where you turn for hope, and where your greatest joy is found, and where you seek to be renewed as a person. That is only found in the gospel. To have the gospel endure in you or abide in you, as John encourages today, means that it's regularly looked at. It's constantly looked at, that you are intentional, not only in your gratitude of it, but understand your completeness in it. To remember that you have the Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit is at work in you, reminding you of the hope of the gospel. 
Well, the gospel does change all things. Look, church, we'll, we'll finish with this. We must continually move towards the gospel. We've got to get away from this idea that it's just transactional. Say a prayer, go to heaven one day. That's not the fullness of the gospel. That's part of it. We've got to move towards understanding that what the gospel declares all of your life. That God is holy and we are not. That God in his grace sent his son that through Jesus' life, and death, and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. And we must trust that that gospel does what it says it will do, and that's restore us to our Heavenly Father in right relationship. And that means that even in the struggle, that because of the gospel, that we are still in Christ, that we can again turn to Him. That even in our hostility, we can turn back to God. You can rage at God all you want, and then you can come back to Him. God can handle that. He's gracious in our fickleness, but would we not tempt it over and over? Look, remain in Christ. Let the gospel endure in your life. And look, very simply, before I just say, good luck, let me just offer some suggestions of how. Because mostly that's what we come to. Well, how? I get it, Nate. I get it. I, I, I get it. I heard it again and again. You keep saying the word gospel like 30 times today. I understand. How? Look, practically, fundamentally, read his word. How do you keep something in your heart and mind? You spend time with it and around it. We have that on the back table. There's still some more of those Bible reading plans. Grab one of those. Because if you're like me, you don't do well willy-nilly good intentions. I don't do well. Like I need things kind of laid out for me. Grab a Bible even or use something else. Just Google it if you need to. Get an app on your phone. Whatever is most helpful. Read his word. Spend time in prayer and orient your life around Jesus. Okay? That, that's not, two of those are pretty easy to do, I think. Read God's word and spend time in prayer. And I think those things will begin to develop how you orient your life Fundamentally, ask Jesus what he wants to do in your life. What are you afraid of? Ask him. And I'm, here's what I'm going to assume. If you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, then you have a relationship with him. Give him a chance to speak into your life. God's not looking for stoic people just to kind of numbly, what if that's even a word, follow him. And like, we're just, you know, we're New Englanders. We just, we're fine. You need help? I'm fine. All right? You just, you sound fine. Man. Ask Jesus what he wants to do in your life. What areas in your life are there that, that there may not be places that are God-honoring? What does he want to do in your life? What does he want to do through your life? So now we try to up the stock a little bit, up the ante a little bit here. What does he want to do in your life? That's pretty easy in some ways, right? That's, that's, that's personal. What does he want to do through your life? How does he want to use you in the making of disciples? How does he want to use you in the growing of his kingdom? How does he want to use you in the shaping of culture? 
of families, of neighbors. Right? So right now, we're going to assume that, that Paul and Charlotte are nice people, and they actually prayed about saying yes to Jesus okay, as their Savior. And then when they were approached it to actually teach kids, they actually prayed about that and felt like God said, yep, we want, yep, do that. That's good. God is then using, he's working through them to teach kids. That's fairly kind of small in terms of risk. Paul and Charlotte have been in this church far before I was. It's clear they love Jesus. We're confident on that. And they were just willing to say yes. Because they asked God, how do you want me? How do you want to work through me? How do you want to work through me? So praying that you ask Jesus what he wants to do in your life, what are areas in your life that there may not be God honoring, and how he can work through those things. Remind yourself daily that there is joy in being known by your creator and that he does not want to just take you out. Do not endeavor. Listen, this is a huge one. This is the how things, right? I don't often do this, but here's some how things. Do not endeavor on this task of letting the gospel endure in your life. Do not endeavor on this task by yourself. Do not do this alone. The person of God is meant to be served by the people of God in their pursuit of God. Meaning God is meant to be served, like honored and worshiped and glorified by the people of God, collectively doing this together. Do not pursue this alone. Let the gospel endure and remain and strive after Jesus more and more alongside other people who want this to be happening in your lives, in their lives, so they're praying to that end that would happen just as much in your life as it would in their own lives. Look, false teachings, the things that draw our heart away from the gospel, they're not always newsworthy. You know what? They're usually subtle. So be on guard. Be watchful. And let me just end with this. I gave you three examples of well-known people who figured out how to convince everybody else around them that they had it figured out right. And I ended each one of their kind of summaries with a phrase. They did not rise from the grave. Man, Jesus rose from the grave. Like John, the one who wrote here, saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. Man, his words carry way more weight to me than any of these false gospels. Church, I beg you, don't be lured in. Don't be drawn to the gospel that is false. Press into Jesus. Let the gospel endure. Do it with other people. And it's for your good. Let's pray. Jesus, we try to figure this out in a lot of ways. Just how do we pursue you? And it's a lot, and it's hard, and it's challenging. But God, I know we can't do it by ourselves, and I know you want us to be successful. Because I know you want us to be fully rooted and established. You want your sheep to know the name of the shepherd when he calls them. God, it only happens when we learn to hear your voice. 
We spend time in your word. We spend time in prayer. We spend time with your people in pursuit, not just doing fun things. That's, that's good. And not just spending time together, but in pursuit of godliness together. We learn what your voice sounds like. We know it's trustworthy. We know it's true. It's dependable. Jesus, would you let the gospel endure in our lives? In rich ways, in new ways, and in deep ways. Amen.